BP added more than $70 billion to the U.S. economy in 2022 by making investments from coast to coast. Investments like building charging hubs for fleets of electric buses in California and starting up new infrastructure in the Gulf of Mexico. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America. Our ability to see into a hurricane has been changed by technology at RMSH Wind. Using data directly from hurricane reconnaissance, H Wind creates an unparalleled visualization of a tropical cyclone's wind field. Along with satellite observations, these images allow us to see hurricanes in 4K. This ability is what caught the attention of RMS, a risk management company. How can creating a high-resolution wind analysis of a tropical cyclone help manage risk? We'll answer that question today as we're joined by Dr. Mark Powell, the lead researcher who developed this project. Mark, thank you for joining us on the Weather Geeks podcast. Well, thanks for having me on, Marshall. It's a pleasure to be here. Well, it's a pleasure to have you talking to us on the podcast, coming to us from Tallahassee, my old stomping grounds. Uh, Let's just take a journey back to where it started for you. Uh, Your name is well known for those of us in the meteorological circles as someone who is an expert in tropical meteorology. Uh, As I do with all Weather Geeks guests, how did you become a Weather Geek? Uh, Well, it it started, uh, I grew up on the... uh, uh, South Shore of Long Island uh, and uh, spent a lot of time sailing on the Great South Bay and uh, eventually got into racing uh, little sailboats, uh, little dinghies. And uh, sailboat racing, you have to be really attuned to the wind and uh, you have to kind of micro predict changes in the wind direction uh, to do well. So I really got fascinated by both uh, meteorology and oceanography uh, from all that time on the water. So, you know, I used I worked with Joanne Simpson for some time when I was at NASA Goddard Space Flight Center. And I remember Joanne saying almost every meteorologist at some point should try to fly a plane or sailing because uh, sort of marine activities and aviation activities really test your salt as a meteorologist. Do you agree with that statement? Absolutely. Yeah, that's something that, you know, Joanne Simpson, by the way, for those that don't know the name, pioneering tropical meteorologist, first woman to get her Ph.D. in meteorology. If you don't know who Joanne Simpson is, please Google her. All right. Let me just take a step back before we really dive into the RMS H wind. What did you do? You were at the Hurricane Research Division. By the way, NOAA has several research divisions. NOAA is the National Oceanic and Atmospheric Administration. The Hurricane Research Division, commonly called HRD, is where you spent much of your time. Tell us a little bit about what you did there. Okay, sure. Uh uh, HRD was formerly known as the National Hurricane Research Lab, kind of like the, the counterpart to uh, NSSL, um, and is currently located uh, on Virginia Key, right across from the Miami Seaquarium and the University of Miami uh, Marine School um, at the Atlantic Oceanographic and Meteorological Laboratories. So um, I worked there from... 1978 uh, until uh, uh, 2014. Well, 20 last few years being up in Tallahassee here, but um, yeah, I, I uh, they're they're kind of the uh, that's where you go to to really get into hurricanes. And uh, I, at the start of my career, I had the ability to uh, 
or the, 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 the chance to fly into hurricanes. So I, I took advantage of that opportunity and uh, managed to fly into Ur- Listen, I, I 13 put on the, hurricanes. I want to put on the brakes right there. That was my screeching <laughs> sound because I want to go there for a second because you yeah. are one of these rare people. There aren't too many of you on the planet that have flown into a hurricane. And you said you've flown into 13 of these. Just walk us through, because this is Weather Geeks, and we have listeners from all over the spectrum, from the casual enthusiast to just someone curious about weather. Walk us through your experience flying through a hurricane, and particularly if there were any situations that really kind of made you a bit nervous, like, "Uh uh-oh, should have thought through this a little bit more. Yeah, um, well, yeah, I started out in um, 1978. Uh, Actually, my first flight was 1977 as a grad student at Penn State. Um, but, uh, yeah, it's, uh, it's quite a, it's quite an experience here. Uh, the flights are long. They're about, uh, 10 hours. Uh, it takes a while to, to get to the storm sometimes. So you have, uh, kind of, uh, long periods where not, not much is going on. Um, and then you get to, uh, you get to the storm and you're usually flying a typical, uh, pattern, a figure four or butterfly pattern, some kind of a pattern uh, that will collect uh, measurements that are consistent with a, a certain uh, hypothesis or experiment that the lead scientist wants to conduct. And back then, we didn't really uh, understand some of the safety issues as well as we do now. So we used to fly uh, really low. Um, so I'm talking... Uh, penetration of the eye wall as low as uh, 500 feet. Oh, wow. Really? For me, that was spectacular because uh, because of my interest in in uh, the intersection of the atmosphere and, and the ocean, you know, air-sea interaction. Um, you just got to see spectacular sights. First of all, the water has all these different shades of blue and green and gray and uh, you have uh, you have uh, w- uh, waves, you know. So you have the the wind waves, and, and they're on top of the swell. And uh, because of the you know where the storm happens to be, uh, there's different fetches involved in those waves. Some have, may have been generated quite a while ago. Some generated not so long ago. So they're going in different directions, and they're going in different directions relative to the wind. So some of these waves are getting steep and then the whole top of the wave gets sheared off by the wind and this kind of a, you know, a explosion of, of spray, sea spray going into the air. And then the, the waves are also breaking and they are uh, ingesting a lot of air into the water and they form so that air forms bubbles and the life cycle bubbles is such that... Uh, uh, it stays in the water for a while and then gets organized into Langmuir circulation. So you have these streaks of bubbles. And then as the winds get higher and higher, as you're approaching the eye wall, um, the, the, there's more and more air going into the water. And it takes a long time for that, those bubbles to come back up to the surface and pop. So, so the water is basically turning white as you get closer to the eye wall and winds on the order of 100 knots. Wow. And uh, you have this uh, really unusual whiteout effect where the you can't really tell the difference between the ocean, the air, and the rain. 
you know, it's all, all becomes white. Wow. That's, it's really spectacular to see that progression as you, you know, fly from the outer portions of the storm into the eye wall and then into the eye where, you know, if you're lucky, the eye will be clear. If you're lucky, I love that statement. But where, where, where is, is the most turbulent or bumpy part of the ride as you're penetrating the eye wall or perhaps in some of the intervening sort of clear areas in the bands where I would expect, imagine you would have some substance? Where, where's the most turbulent aspect? Yeah, you're, you're right. I mean, the, um, the turbulence is uh, most extreme going through the eye wall where you've got, you know, these really significant updrafts and downdrafts. So it's not unusual to have an uh, updraft of, you know, 20, 30 meters per second followed by, followed almost immediately by a downdraft. And so when you're going through that, um, it's nice to have a shoulder harness on to kind of keep you in your seat because if you, literally yes. yeah you'd be bouncing off the overhead if you didn't have uh you know a bunch of straps on and in fact there have been cases where um the updraft downdraft sequence has been so severe that uh, equipment has uh has come loose um and uh you know uh once they get in the eye they you know they gotta hustle around secure everything Wow. Now, before we move on, because I definitely want to, we're talking to Dr. Mark Powell, and we're going to talk about this amazing technology, uh, RMHS H-Wind, uh, at de- being developed at RMHS H-Wind. But I uh, want to mention one more thing. You mentioned that you flew in pretty low in those days. Where about do they go in altitude-wise today? Uh, today, it's uh, 10,000 feet. So so back when I, back when I was uh, doing this and... and uh, you know, we didn't really know better. Uh, you know, we could fly in as low as 500 feet if it was a stronger storm, maybe be 1500 feet. Um, I mean, uh, yeah, 1500 feet or, or 5,000 feet sometimes, uh, typically low because that's the highest winds are, are right around 1500 feet. And you're trying to sample the, you know, the, the most severe part of the storm. So you'd, if you want to sample the highest winds, you have to be down there at those altitudes. Um, now they've they realize that uh, you know if if something something happens on the aircraft that doesn't give you a lot of uh, altitude to uh, work with to try to uh, you know fix things. Um, and so there's been a couple of close calls. There was one. Uh, you know, Jeff Masters remembers. Oh yeah, from I, Hurricane I, Hugo. Yes, yes. Jeff Masters, with form of the founder of Weather Underground, for those listeners familiar with Weather Underground, had a very harrowing experience. Yeah, we're all windsurfing buddies. <laughs> yes. So yeah, so there was one there, and uh, and then there were some experiments uh, uh, that were conducted, the sea blast experiments in the early two thousands, uh, where uh, uh, because of salt deposition on the um, um, the engines, uh, sometimes there were, uh, flame outs where they could lose an engine. Uh, and so they realized that, uh, you know, that was a consequence of, uh, low level flights and picking up a lot of salt, uh, from the, uh, aerosol from the, uh, sea surface. So, um, so now they, they tend to fly higher and have, expendables that can measure those winds down low you know the gps on and uh and also remote sensing uh using the uh, step frequency microwave radiometer
Have you heard you can listen to your favorite news podcasts ad-free? Good news. With Amazon Music, you have access to the largest catalog of ad-free top podcasts included with your Prime membership. To start listening, download the Amazon Music app for free or go to amazon.com slash ad-free news podcasts. That's amazon.com slash ad-free news podcasts to catch up on the latest episodes without the ads. And we are back on the Weather Geeks podcast, and I'm talking with Dr. Mark Powell, who I first knew from the NOAA Hurricane Research Division. He's now working on RMS H-Wind. He's coming to us from iHeart Radio Studios in Tallahassee, Florida. And you just heard some fascinating things about his early career, or I would say the bulk of his career in terms of his work at HRD and flying through hurricanes to collect data for research and, and even for some operational use as it goes. We have the Air Force Hurricane Hunters, and then NOAA certainly has Hurricane Hunters as well, or planes that fly into storms. They even have planes that fly over storms, if you will, somewhat with their uh, Gulfstream plane as well. NASA has planes that do these types of things as well. This leads me to H-Wind. Your research has led you to H-Wind Snapshot. Tell us a little bit about this product, why it's being developed, and can it supplement or replace some of these dangerous aircraft trips? Yeah, that's kind of an interesting story. So, you know, it it sounds really uh, heroic and all flying into these hurricanes, but what I didn't mention is that I usually got sick on about half the flights. Well, you're certainly, uh, we certainly understand. (laughs) (laughs) And uh, so I was looking for ways to contribute maybe by not having to fly uh, as often. And uh, I I noticed that the the aircraft, um, the NOAA aircraft had a a, a satellite data link uh, where they could send data directly to the National Hurricane Center. And then I had the opportunity because HRD was one floor uh, below the National Hurricane Center in Cor- when we were in Coral Gables to see how that information was being used. And so I had a whole bunch of ideas of how to better utilize that information. And that, that was the, that really started me on a track towards, uh, and of course the, the developing internet also helped of, uh, real-time observation-based wind field analysis from multiple platforms. So using everything we can get our hands on being sent out from the aircraft, uh, but in addition, uh, buoys, uh, uh, weather stations at airports, uh, ships, and uh, uh, various satellite platforms uh, uh, with different remote sensing techniques uh, measuring winds at the surface. And, And because I... Because I was uh, trained as a uh, uh, boundary layer specialist, uh, especially at Penn State, um, I, uh, I knew that you had to take uh, into account the heights of anemometers, the upstream fetch and roughness uh, to be able to standardize the measurements so you could analyze all, this, all these different types of measurements uh, together to get uh, one uh, surface wind field analysis. Now, you heard Dr. Powell mention the boundary layer, and that's uh, for those Weather Geeks listeners that don't have a formal training in meteorology. That's uh, kind of this first kilometer. So it can actually vary, and it does change uh, from day to night as well in terms of its depth. But it's sort of this layer of the atmosphere where the surface and the lowest layer of the atmosphere sort of 
kind of exchange information or talk to each other, if you will. You often hear one kilometer or so, the first one kilometer, lower one kilometer of the atmosphere. And in a hurricane environment over the ocean, the boundary layer processes are very, very important. And so um, certainly would understand why in some of your early career you were collecting data or, or flying in at low levels too to sort of sample the boundary layer. You mentioned satellite data. And, you know, I'm a satellite guy. I spent most of my career before the University of Georgia at NASA. Uh, can you talk to the listeners about some of the ways that a satellite is used to measure wind? I mean, I know there are things like scatterometers and other things, but can you just give the listeners a little 101 on those types of techniques? Yeah, sure. Uh, well, a, a scatterometer is uh, is one, one of the main platforms we use to uh, gather information on winds, primarily in the periphery of the hurricane. Um uh, and uh, they're actually improving their algorithms so that uh, you can get, you can start detecting higher winds uh, from those instruments. But they're looking at the scattering of um, these very tiny uh, waves that are on top of the wind waves. They're called capillary waves. And uh, they can detect the uh, wind direction based on those uh, capillary waves because the, the signal is different if the wave is going towards or away from the the beam um, that, that's being transmitted from the satellite. Um, uh, so there, and, 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 and the strength of the return or the scattering of that signal, uh, they can actually get a, a, a wind speed. And actually, it's one of the things that uh, our H1 product has been used uh, by uh, NASA, the European Space Agency, and the Canadian Space Agency to help uh, derive um, these functions that go from what the satellite actually measures. It, it actually doesn't measure wind. It measures something that's affected by wind. So this, the backscatter of that microwave signal is affected by wind. And so they can overlay that backscatter si signal on top of one of our wind fields and get that relationship between uh, backscatter uh, and uh, wind speed. Uh, and that's called a geophysical model function that's what actually gets the winds from that satellite signal. Yeah, I love it. We're geeking out here with Dr. Mark Powell talking all about tropical meteorology and how we measure some of these things. I, I wanted to make sure you explain that because, you know, oftentimes I don't think people realize just how much satellite data is utilized. I mean, we have aircraft and we have observations, but this global network of satellites that NOAA and NASA and other space agencies have up there are important, not just for research, day-to-day -day operations. I often see uh, the National Hurricane Center mention uh, ASCAD or other scatterometer uh, in their discussions when they're trying to, to locate the center and place hurricanes. And you're also using it in your techniques as well. So along comes this risk management company, RMS. Uh, tell us a little bit about RMS and then how they got connected to this H-Wind project. Sure. Um well, while while I was uh, developing this uh, H1 product, in uh, actually in NOAA, and we were putting our analyses out on the web, and uh, unfortunately, our funding um, uh, at NOAA was uh, starting to f not to keep up, and uh, it was getting tougher to keep the program going. And uh, I saw an opportunity to uh, see if I could. Uh, Rather than see it sit on a shelf uh, in a in a government lab, uh, whether I could take it out into the private sector. So, 
Uh, I spent about a year working with NOAA's uh, uh, technology partnership program uh, to see if there's a way that I could uh, uh, bring it out uh, of, uh, into the private sector. After about a year, I was granted the um, uh, inventor rights uh, to uh, the H1 product. Uh, and uh, I did a startup uh, right here in Tallahassee uh, at an uh, uh, incubator called Domi Station. And, uh, uh, and I started rating my Roth IRA to hire PhDs out of Florida State. And uh, so we got started. And after about a, oh, uh, a little over a year and a half, uh, we got acquired by uh, Risk Management Solutions, who had been using our products to help develop their hurricane, their North Atlantic hurricane uh, uh, risk model. Uh, so that's that's how we got going, and and uh, they saw that uh, there was a lot of talent at Florida State, and uh, wanted to have a, you know a uh, some visibility here in Tallahassee. So we have an office in uh, uh, down in uh, co- the College Town area uh, in uh, Tallahassee, and I have a handful of uh, really bright young. Uh, scientists working with me and we also employ uh several students uh, out of the both uh, fsu and uh florida a&m who are helping us you know i as a as a three-time florida state alum i i could imagine if i were a student at that time i would have been chomping at the bit to perhaps work at a company like this what a great opportunity uh one thing that you said in that discussion, though, I want to kind of sort of fixate on for a moment, because you talked about this lapse in government funding, uh, government funding, NOAA, NASA, National Science Foundation, Department of Energy is very important uh, for standing up new capabilities, new technology. But as we know, funding in the government system is at the whim of the president, the Congress and many other factors. But that's interesting that you, uh, I guess, a lifetime civil servant, if you will, or at least very much in the civil servant system, recognize the opportunities in the private sector. Say a little bit more about just your overall perspective on the public-private partnership within the weather enterprise, because it seemed like it was a really a nice opportunity for you. Yeah, I think um, I, I think probably that that, that that pressure on funding actually helped me to some extent, because uh, the, the base funding of our laboratory wasn't even keeping up with inflation. Uh, so the only way I was able to keep H1 going was uh, I had to hustle and get uh, proposals um, funded, uh, even some from the private sector. So after Hurricane Andrew, we got some funding from F- Florida Power and Light. Uh, we uh, we got funding from the National Institutes Institute of Building Sciences. Uh, uh, we were um, I was active as uh, one of the uh, uh, on the tech committee for the Hazus uh, model from uh, from FEMA. Sure. So there were there were a bunch of uh, kind of non-standard funding uh, sources I was able to uh, successfully you know go after, um, but uh, it seemed like the you know the uh, and and even uh, you know for a while there we were developing this as something that could be used at the National Hurricane Center through the Joint Hurricane Testbed. Uh, as well, uh, so yeah, that that kind of prepared me for you know when you're in the private sector you got to do that too you got to 
you got to go out there and hustle to get, to get, uh, clients. Uh, so, so, you know, uh, being able to talk to some of these, you know, large insurance companies like Swiss Re, um, you know, as a, as a startup from a, from a little business incubator in, in Tallahassee was a big deal. It's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda. You never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price. Priceline. And we are back on the Weather Geeks podcast. I'm Dr. Marshall Shepard from the University of Georgia, and I'm talking with Dr. Mark Powell, and we're talking about his fascinating imagery and product, H-Wind, and he just talked about how risk management companies are thinking about and utilizing this very interesting wind information and you know to assess risk and think about sort of risk portfolio which is a big issue now in weather and risk and even climate change and all types of other things but i want to shift gears now and geek out again this show we like to geek out we talk to meteorologists a lot and we, we can geek out on this show we can really use the terminology we're not trying to necessarily simplify things but we definitely try to explain things if we don't think people understand them i'm going to bring up a term here that may not be familiar to some, but then we're going to geek out on it. Integrated kinetic energy. You're a big proponent of using integrated kinetic energy or IKE. And you think that we should be using this to supplement the way we categorize hurricanes. And that's been a big discussion in recent years with Harvey and Florence and this notion of uh, wind versus rain. And, you know, Florence necessarily was a big rain producer, so had impacts, but the Saffir Simpson scale didn't necessarily convey it. Tell us what integrated kinetic energy is and why you think we should be using it more. Okay, sure. Um well, integrated kinetic energy is just a, uh, it's a metric for the size of the wind field in a hurricane. So what we do is uh, from one of our wind fields, we look at the area that has winds over tropical storm force and kind of put a checkerboard over that or grid cells over that. And each each box, we, we square the wind multiplied by the um, density of the air and we sum it up into this value. So it's basically uh, kind of weighting the storm on the, on how much energy that is in the wind field uh, near the surface. So where it really comes in is uh, when you have storms that may not be up there on the Saffir-Simpson scale in terms of intensity, but have large wind fields. So, so Hurricane Ike uh, was... a or Hurricane Sandy were really good examples of this. Storms that were barely, you know, Sandy was, you know, barely a hurricane, uh, and then and then actually not a hurricane, uh, right right after landfall, um, but a huge wind field, um, and so that that large wind field can get a lot of water moving. It can force a lot of waves. Waves propagate out ahead of hurricanes, um, and, uh, have tremendous, uh, destructive impact. So, 
So you can have a case, say, say for New Orleans, they might think, uh, well, we need Category 5 protection or, you know, for levees or something. Um, and their worst nightmare might not be a Category 5. It might be a huge Category 2 uh, just because of the large amount of water a, a, a big wind field can get moving. And I think that's an important point because as, as we talk about, and I guess one of our former colleagues, um, Ed Rappaport, has always talked about really water is the problem and the deadly aspect of a hurricane, whether that be rainfall and in this case surge. And so you're suggesting that this IKE can be a nice supplemental factor in quantifying that surge uh, risk, if you will. That's right. Yeah. And uh, so one of the things that we do when we're issuing our our products, you know, we go into a 24 seven shift cycle uh, when a when a hurricane's active and recon aircraft are flying into it. Uh, we're uh, updating our analyses every three hours and we're computing the integrated kinetic energy and then we'll we'll uh, compare it to other uh, storms in history so that you can kind of get a, a benchmark it, at least in terms of the the wind field uh, part and its ability to move water. How does this compare to a Katrina or Camille or, you know, other, other storms that the public or, and uh, businesses are very familiar with? Yeah, this is fascinating. I mean, I've been, I've been involved in some research with a couple of colleagues even recently on trying to have an integrated product like this, but for the rainfall aspect of the storm too. It's a, a challenging problem, but it's something we've been thinking about. While I have the, while I have you, uh, Mark Powell here, we're talking with Dr. Mark Powell, expert on tropical meteorology. Um, you, I know it's different from the IKE, but you do hear it out there. So I want to make sure our Weather Geeks listeners understand the difference between IKE and then this term ACE that you all, this, uh, uh, that you often hear people talk about in the hurricane world. Uh, can you distinguish what ACE is uh, versus IKE? Because I, I think ACE has more to do perhaps with available uh, water or the, the energy supply available to hurricanes? No, it's actually, well, it's very simple. It's uh, you just take the uh, the peak wind in the hurricane and you square it and then you're summing it up over the life cycle of the hurricane. So mm-hmm. so it doesn't have, it doesn't take into account the size of the storm at all. It's just uh, how long has that storm been going on and uh, and it really just depends on the intensity of the storm. Yeah, I, w- I wanted to make sure we made that, disting- that distinction because I, I some people who are more well-versed in tropical meteorology may see that there are some similarities between IKE and ACE because they both involve manipulation of the wind field in some way. But your IKE metric is really kind of kept, it's more of a holistic sort of I would call spatial metric, if you will, sort of three-dimensional in some regards because it's capturing the size of the storm whereas ACE really has this time component too? Yeah, and, and we've actually uh, partnered with um, uh, uh, Dr. Vasu uh, at, um, at Florida State. Vasu, Vasu Mishra, is that? Yeah, uh, Dr. Mishra, sorry. Yeah. Um, he, um, yeah he got the idea to, uh, you know, let's do something similar to ACE, but with IKE. So it's called the Track Integrated Kinetic Energy and it just sums up the kinetic energy along the life cycle of the storm along the track, similar to the way ACE does. And so he he and I uh, put a paper out a few years ago on that. And uh, so it's an alternative to ACE. And uh, one of the things I'd like to do is go back and and uh, 
similar to how ACE is used, go back and link it to different uh, climate signals to uh, see how, um, it, you know, it'll give a little better idea on how some of these climate indices or, or signals uh, might impact the size of storms in addition to the number and duration of storms. Really fascinating conversation here with doc, Dr. Mark Powell. I'm so glad we have a ch- had a chance to have you on Weather Geeks. Got a few more things I want to talk to you about in this last segment. So we're here in this sort of era that you're working in as a in the private sector now. In the future, what do you think the next big advancements will be when it comes to tropical cyclone imagery or the types of products that that you're developing or even the others are developing? What where where are we headed? Well, there's a couple of areas I think are are really exciting right now. Um, You know, traditionally I've been an observationalist and haven't really focused too much on forecasting. But um, when we were a uh, startup, I had the opportunity to compete for a uh, uh, SBIR, Small Business Innovation Research uh, Grant, uh, that was based on uh, subseasonal forecasting. And I got really interested in uh, ensemble forecasting. We weren't able to get the, that grant, but it did start me on the path to looking at uh, forecasting, and I could see tremendous opportunity in improving forecasts by using the ensemble information. Um, so that's something that we're very actively. We've we've actually been in a, a four-year R&D cycle on. Um, developing a new forecast uh, product uh, that's really designed for the insurance and financial industries to give them a better idea of potential losses from from an event and and uh, give them an idea of the uncertainty of the event so we we kind of go beyond um, the, the typical cone you know which is based on uh, you know five year average uh, errors uh, to really look at the spread of uncertainty for this event that's that's at hand uh, and then we have the advantage of uh, having many years of financial modeling in our risk models so it's it's combining these uh, you know probabilistic view of uh, from the ensemble and all the deterministic models basically doing a a multi-model uh, forecast of uh, you know a handful of scenarios uh, but each one can go completely through our our uh, risk and financial model. So a big uh, insurance company or financial uh, uh, company can uh, put their portfolio through there and uh, see what the range of impacts might be uh, for them. You mentioned something in that discussion there of how your your new products and new thoughts and ideas may translate into sort of the financial or risk management community. But in something you said, I want to go back to something very basic in meteorology that I find confuses the public, and that's that hurricane cone. And you talked about this based on five year the five year error cycle or five year error over the uh, course of the the last several years. Can you just clearly in a quick 101 explain the cone to people? Because I, I still think a lot of people mischaracterize it. Yeah, it's a, it's, it's a, you know, it's a, it's a bit complex, but basically it's a, a five years worth of the uh, track uh, forecast errors. And the cone is, is designed to encompass uh, two thirds of that error. Um, so it doesn't go out to the uh, 
complete range of the errors, but on the order of, um, of, uh, you know, 66% of the, of the, um, error distribution, uh, this cone is capturing, you know, and so it's capturing most of the uncertainty in an event, but for some events, uh, for example, hurricane Joaquin from 2014, uh, you know, very uncertain where you've got one, you know, the European model taking a storm one way and the NOAA model, the GFS taking it another way. Um, something like the cone will, will drastically underestimate the uncertainty of that event. Yeah. Yeah. No, it's, it's, I, I just, it's any chance I get I, from a, a weather communication standpoint, I like to have an expert like you explain it because I see people interpret it all different ways. Uh, people think if it does, the hurricane doesn't go down the center of the cone, but some, slightly to the right or left, the forecast was wrong or that it represents the immediate model spread of the models for that day or for that week. So I, I wanted to make sure I gave you an opportunity to explain it a little bit more as we draw to a close for upcoming researchers and perhaps entrepreneurs. Entrepreneurs, what advice would you have based on your career? Um, I would say um, uh, when uh, life throws you cur- curveballs, they could be opportunities. Um, and I've had uh, several times during my career where uh, things happened that I thought were complete disasters, and then they turned out to be uh, opportunities that uh, really helped me along the way. Yeah, um, yeah. <laughs> so I, I could give you one example would be, um, you know, we were, we were developing H wind through the joint hurricane test bed as really something for the national hurricane center. Um, and, uh, you know, we worked, you know, right alongside the forecasters and, uh, I, I think we had something that was, uh, really state of the art. Uh, but what, what I failed to, um, really get was that yeah it was state of the art but state of the art doesn't necessarily transfer into operations so we had uh this was you know back in the early 2000s uh we received uh you know awards from NOAA for tech transfer and uh and development on uh, uh you know we had we had a java based application we were using object uh, re- relational databases. Uh, so we had this, all this cutting edge technology, but, um, you know, we didn't, uh, we didn't realize, well, there, there, there weren't, there weren't, uh, staff able to manage a, an object relational database, uh, at the hurricane center. Um, the, um, you know, there weren't Java developers there, for instance, you know, everything was based on a certain, I think they were using gem packer, you know, something like that back then. So, so in, in operations, you can't always bring the cutting edge in because they, they need something that's uh, dependable and reliable. And that usually means using something that was developed 10 or 20 years ago and we know it works and we're not going to mess with it. Wow. So I think that's great advice overall um, uh, about this sort of, if you will, the way I put it, if you, when life throws you lemons, try to make some lemonade out of it. Um, I, I think that's right. I mean, I, I, I don't know if it was a lemon, but when I made the decision to leave NASA, for example, people were like, people were telling me, you don't, people don't leave NASA. Are you crazy? Um, but the opportunity to move to the University of Georgia and impact students and just do so many other things that I've been able to do, uh, I, I would agree with that idea that um, uh, you just try to leverage situations 
questions don't get too stuck in your comfort zones. Last question, quick one. Do you have any new products coming out uh, from your uh, work or is it you're going to kind of just stick with sort of honing this? I mean, I know you mentioned some of the things earlier, but anything else that you want to mention? Yeah. Um, this uh, hurricane season, I know it's really dead right now, but eventually we're going to get a storm. Well, most most of the ace that we talk about comes in September, right? Yeah, right. So uh, when I started my career, every, everyone told me, well, don't make any plans for Labor Day because there's always something going on. Right. right? So, uh, uh, yeah, we're about to uh, launch a new uh, forecast product, this one I alluded to earlier. Um which uh, you know will really help to distill all this information. So there's there's so much complex forecast information coming out. You know they call they talk about the spaghetti forecast where you look at uh, you know there's hundreds of and literally there are hundreds of uh, tropical cyclone forecasts coming out at at a given any given time. You know typically the twice a day you know zero zeros. Uh, zero zero z or or 12 z uh greenwich time um uh hundreds of models coming out how do you distill all that information i mean the hurricane center does a great job of of doing that um and that's something that uh you know we we've we think we could do also and we've think we can also account for uh, the uncertainty in the atmosphere for this event, you know, going beyond the, the cone. So, so uh, that's the new product that's coming out. We're distilling all that information into a handful of plausible scenarios, each one with a set of uh, probabilities, and uh, and then a, a bunch of associated files that allow our clients to uh, compute the losses to their portfolio. Wow, what a, what a fascinating tour de force conversation! Um, can, where can people find any information about you or your company? Uh, we're at uh, rms.com. They're very simple, easy to find. So I encourage everyone to take a look at the website to keep up with what Dr. Mark Powell is doing uh, and his product that are basically is providing hurricanes in 4K. Mark, thank you so much for joining us on the Weather Geeks podcast. Well, thank you so much for having me. It's uh, it's an honor to be on the air with you. Yeah, well, it's been a great discussion. And uh, look for this one and many other great new episodes of Weather Geeks coming forward. I'm Dr. Marshall Shepard from the University of Georgia coming to you from the Weather Channel. And thank you all for listening. See you next time or talk to you next time.